painting to photography, from beadwork to woodworking, KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University presents Artbeat. Artbeat highlights the work and accomplishments of local artists from in and around Winona. Support for Artbeat is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Recently, the International Digital Media Arts Association held a conference and exhibition here in Winona, and we were there to check out all the weird digital art being presented. Two of the artists that we spoke with, Jennifer Gradecki and Derek Curry, had a video piece in the exhibition titled Infodemic. Both artists are also assistant professors at Northeastern University in Boston, and their piece Infodemic deals with the way that misinformation spreads throughout today's social and digital media while also gaining traction as truth. How do we discern what is truth and what is fiction in today's world? Well, Jennifer and Derek are here to help us figure that out and to prompt us to think a little deeper when consuming today's digital medium. I'm Bill Stoneberg with Jennifer Gradecki and Derek Curry at the International Digital Media Arts Association Weird Media Conference today on Artbeat. I am with Jennifer Grodecki and Derek Curry. Uh, they are artists that contributed to the uh, Weird Media Conference or the IDMAA. Uh, conference and weird media is the uh, theme this year. Uh, thanks for joining us today, you guys. Thanks for having yeah, us. Thank you. Yeah, um, I just your your uh, piece that's in the in the exhibit this year. I really like um, the thoughts behind it and the theme and everything. Um, and the infodemic. Uh, this is something I think a lot about. Is how you know being in radio and media for a while now. Um, the way that we consume our media and what we think about it and how do we discern what is true you know um and i'm not real familiar with like deep fakes i'm aware of what they are and stuff like that i don't uh i try to limit my media consumption actually especially online but this whole idea of misinformation um and deciding what is true you know i know we just um, and I'm taking up a lot of our time just talking, but I just want to introduce this to our audience. You know, in the the artist talk that you guys just, guys just gave, uh, there were a lot of questions about how do you decide what is true, a lot having to do with, like, the quality of an image or recording. Um, and now, And I know that sometimes a lower quality video seems true in like a realistic way, you know, high quality video seems true as if it came from a real reliable source. And sometimes it's vice versa for both. Um, do you think that we need to adjust and how, I guess, do we evolve and adjust the way we, you know, take the media in like our media literacy? Do we need to step that up and adjust how we view that? Or do we need to like put real strict standards on things? And how would that look like? Like, what's your guys' take on that? I can go ahead and start and then maybe Derek can add to it. Um, I think the media literacy's angle to me, I'm also a professor, but I think that that is a really important way to go about it that, um, you know, giving a type of centralized power to a social media company to determine what is true and what isn't and potentially then censor things or shadow ban people um, or even even worse to try to maybe do that algorithmically to me seems like a really dangerous avenue. Um, so I would definitely not uh, advocate going in the direction of any kind of like technological solutionism. But I do think that at an individual level, what I am always hoping to do with my work is to open up these complex 
uh, socio-technical systems that might be hard for the public to understand, for non-experts to understand. And so with this project, Infodemic, we wanted, we left all of the imperfections in our images that we created with an algorithm so that people can start to see the ways that they break down. So, um, you know, leaving that in there when they do come across a deep fake, they might start to be able to see some of those flaws because they do have certain pattern-like characteristics that people might be able to notice. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know if Derek wants to add to that. What happens when the technology gets so good that we don't notice those anymore with our And I, I think that's where critical thinking is really going to come into play, and hopefully that's something that can be really integrated into um, you know, public education, I would recommend. Um, you know, and at the college level, we're doing this all the time. My students are, are they try to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but Right, so even if something appears to be real, do you know the source? Um, does what they're saying actually align with many other narratives? So cross-checking your references. So these are you know, some really basic types of media literacy, but that's what I would recommend. Yeah, yeah for sure. What do you think, Derek? Um, well, there's been some tools that have been made to, to help people break out of um, their, their filter bubbles, um, so to speak. Um, uh, things that will aggregate different perspectives from multiple news sources and things like that. But, uh, but I think um, a big part of the problem is, is Web 2.0, which allows for the distributed production of news by you know, pretty much anyone who has access to a, a cell phone. Um, and, and you're right, sometimes having this like low production quality does seem more real to people because it seems like, well, they're not trying to pull one over on me. This person's just, you know, uh, speaking from their own experience or, or, or whatever. But, um, and I think that, that in and of itself is a little bit dangerous when, when you give everyone the same amount of authority on any topic. And, and, you know, there's certainly problems with giving a lot of authority to experts, especially when that authority goes unchecked and there's no, debate within the the expert community around it, the scientific community. Um, but I, I think in a lot of ways we've we've swung the pendulum to the other extreme where um, there's people that, that have no authority to talk on certain subjects, uh, saying things uh, and, and amassing a large following um, for you know for the things that they're saying. Um, and I, I don't know what the right way out of that is. I think regulation is bad because it creates another power structure that could then be manipulated to enforce like the correct narrative, which, you know, and, and when you think of state media, that's problematic. Uh, we certainly don't want it to be controlled by Facebook or some other kind of corporate entity. So I think Jennifer's right. And that we're really going to need people to just start thinking critically about where they're, what they're hearing, where they're hearing it. And, and maybe um, at the, the best thing to do is to just not uh, form a, a hard opinion on things um, and, until you have a lot more information and you've given it some, some time to think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the other thing I would add to that is for people to not just immediately, if they're reacting to something, don't just immediately share that. Reflect on what it is that you're seeing. If you're having an emotional response, it's very likely that there's something that is potentially false there, that it's not that extreme of a situation. There's something, there's a way in which it's being spun to make you engage. Um, And I think one of the things I end up teaching my students about a lot is um, the targeted advertising business model.
model, and that is premised on engagement. So the more likes, the more clicks, the more things that you're looking at and sharing, keeping you on that platform, that's exposing you to targeted ads, and that's what they want. They want you to spend as much time as possible. The you know misinformation is actually more engaging than than things that are maybe boring and factual. Mm-hmm. Um, so that works really well in that targeted advertising business model. Right, right. Uh, that leads me to another thought that I had. Um, so, like, say, I, sometimes I daydream about this stuff, and, like, say in a perfect world, like, if there wasn't money attached to it or, you know, the equivalent, whatever it is, they're after power or viewers or whatever, um, do you think that would alleviate some of this? I mean, just, you know, as a thought experiment, like, if there was no bottom line involved in sharing things, you know, which there always is, you know, but, you know, would that help or hurt I want to make sure I understand the question so if it there wasn't like a capitalist agenda that was part of the social media platform um, I mean I yeah I think that really the like I was mentioning that advertising model is the thing that seems to drive the that Um, there's also like you know fake accounts that um, social media uh, companies don't want to find out if they're fake or not because they want to look like they're always getting more and more users right. and that they can show that to the shareholders. Um, so I, I, I totally agree that that being the value system and that being the structure, um, which is a surveillance capitalist model, I think that that does need to change. But that's, you know, where do we start, you know? Um, a lot of people have tried to create alternative social media platforms and networks on you know, premised on completely different values. And then um, with that, and then there are a lot of people that are making mesh networks and they're dealing with like local networks. Um, And so there are a lot of different solutions. The question with that is scalability. Um, You know, how many people can actually be involved in those different platforms? And I don't know if Derek wants to add, yeah. yeah. Derek, do you have any thoughts on that? If we, you know, if money weren't involved or some kind of bottom line or agenda, um, would it be much easier to? Uh, to yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I, um, we've you know we've looked into a lot of research in this area, and most people agree that it, it is the targeted advertising business model that's the, the primary driver behind this this type of misinformation being spread. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, the techniques they're using actually come from. Um, other psychological manipulation techniques developed for propaganda, uh, largely during uh, the Second World War, um, for you know state propaganda. Uh, so this structure now that it's in place, um, it's it's used. It could be used for uh, other types of manipulation. Um, but one of the things that uh, Jennifer and I uh, had written about is is uh, um, unintended propaganda uh, where where people are being fed um, misinformation um, algorithmically um, for some other ends um, an example of this is, is on YouTube when people uh, would perhaps intentionally or unintentionally Google something that turned out to be a conspiracy theory the algorithm uh, YouTube's algorithm would automatically recommend other conspiracy theories to them um, oh. this is how the f- flat earth became a thing again mm-hmm um, and that, and they didn't mean to do that. That's totally unintended. Um, but you know, like the, these uh, these videos are like the other videos that they watch. So uh, it created this this rabbit hole effect. Right, right. Oh, that that's a really good point. That actually brings me to something else I wanted to ask you guys about. Uh, 
I remember, you know, in the early 2000s, and um, I was in school and working at a local TV station, and the uh, internet was new to me, you know, and new to many people that I was around. And it was like, oh, look, Nito websites. Oh, we can share information. Someday we'll be able to share videos, you know. And I look at that now, and I look at today's world and try to imagine the future. Do you think we even understand where we're headed yet? Or are we still just, for lack of a better term, are we just monkeys with a tool and just, and we don't quite understand the power of this tool yet? Where, where do you think we're, we're kind of headed with things as far as media and information and how we share and consume it? Yeah, so, so I think that there are a lot of uh, media scholars and, and people that study, you know, communications and they have a really good understanding of what the problem is, where it came from, and possible avenues to find uh, ways to mitigate it, if not solve certain problems. Um, the problem with that is, is that there's also this like technocratic um, group of people that control these media outlets, and their interests are not aligned with those of, of the media scholars, uh, mainly because it would hurt their bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so yeah, it's, I I think about like the you know the early days of the internet. People thought this like a just distributed form of communication that's going to be amazing, and, and they thought about all the you know potential upsides to it, and a lot of them did materialize. Um, nobody saw you know pornography and cats being you know the main thing that's on the internet. Yeah. Like the, um, and and so uh, I think that. Uh, Sometimes the the most um, absurd dystopian scenarios are the ones that I, I think are going to be the most realistic uh, image of the future. That's interesting. Yeah, I want to add scary. to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I one thing I recommend is the social dilemma. Um, if people haven't seen it, I highly recommend. I actually show it to my students, and they interview people who created all of these different facets of social media technology, people from YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. And for example, one of the people who invented the like button, the idea behind it was they just want people to be able to express something positive. They didn't realize that it was gonna make people addicted to social media to accumulating likes and then to feel bad when they don't have enough likes. They had no idea when creating these small components that it was going to lead to these certain outcomes. Um, So I think, it, because it's such a large system, it's it's hard to understand all of the outcomes. But we see it now, right. and we understand that it's this. You know, especially social media is um, kind of preying on our vulnerabilities as human beings, and it's made to be addictive. You know, even though when these little thi- components of the system were being created, it wasn't clear how it was going to be addictive. Even the people who made it find themselves being addicted to it and don't let their children use it, which is really telling. Mm -hmm. We do see the direction it's heading in now, and I think that makes us responsible to change it. And ideally, it needs to be changed from the inside. Well, it would be nice if people could could also organize against that as well somehow. Right. I was about to ask you, like knowing that then, when we can see what the effects have been this far, does that better equip us then to go into the future with this? Yeah, and for you know, I'm definitely an optimist about this, even though our work I think is really dystopian. I really think that we can make a difference by helping people to have these literacies, helping people to understand the way in which social media is, um, you know, produces dopamine when you get certain amounts of likes and. Um, 
you know, the, the just knowing about the vulnerabilities and also the way in which it's developed and the values um, upon which it's developed, of course, trying to make as much money as possible. Um, I do think that that is the, the best way of moving forward. Do you have any thoughts on that, Derek, about our capabilities moving forward, knowing what we know um, Yeah, if, if I had to guess, uh, I would say that, that what's going to change things is going to be this uh, moment, kind of like with the tobacco industry, where you're going to have someone on the inside who has a very in-depth understanding of, of how the algorithms work and what they're designed to do. Uh, releasing information or coming forward, and then there's going to be a class action lawsuit and that's going to result in, uh, I don't know, maybe some type of regulation or something like with the tobacco companies, how you see advertisements to stop, you know, you should stop smoking or don't start. Yeah, we did see that a little recently with some information coming out about Facebook, Um, but I'm not sure. I don't think that that made it very far in Congress. So do you guys think that we'll need, like, we're, we're all going to need a 12-step program for our cell phones to get off? <laughs> so, you know, is that, that's kind of what it seems like we're headed, you know? Yeah, it really does. I mean, I know for, for one myself, I have to intentionally put it down, and I set aside times to, like, use it. Otherwise, it's, yeah, it's too much. And even when you're aware of it, it's it still gets you, you know? Yep. Um, Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I just, I completely agree that, I mean, even just email, you know, checking email a lot is, Mm -hmm. I think, something that's common for older audience members. Yeah, for sure. Uh, What about future projects for you guys? Um, Do you have any more things in the works along these same lines? Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, we we do, actually. Yeah, so uh, one thing that we're working on is uh, we're creating um, animatronic sock puppets uh, that will um, talk the words uh, of... Um, social media posts that were put out by Russian troll farms um, and we're, we're using a data set that was released uh, for, through the Mueller investigation so they're, when they were looking into um, election manipulation um, Twitter and Facebook came forward with some uh, social media accounts that they had identified as part of a Russian troll farm and, and, and uh, some posts that were designed intentionally to influence uh, the election um, and uh, a lot of those posts are depending on your political leanings uh, seem pretty reasonable um they're they're obviously designed to you know upset you and to get you to to you know share it um but uh what we hope to get out of it is to have people listen to these so so they've also split the data set um by right-wing trolls and left-wing trolls so we want people to listen to each troll and and realize that uh this is is something that they might have heard people uh, that their friends with spread, or um, and also realize that when they're they're listening to the side that they're not uh, leaning towards, it it does seem a little absurd. I'm probably not explaining this great, so maybe Jennifer can can fill in some of the. Yeah, it's always tricky to be articulate when you're in the process, like in the studio making the project. And we oftentimes will have even more to say after it's developed, you know, because you spend so much time. Exactly. And we're also still the data set is so huge and most people haven't seen it. And what we really want for people to do is engage with the data set and actually see what these tweets are like and hear them because... Uh, it's very, very likely that people would have shared something like this. It's, they seem very commonplace a lot of times. Some of them, are, it's very obvious that it's trying to be inflammatory. And 
they're trying to be polarizing. So it was really clearly what they were going for. They wanted to divide people and to push them further to the left or further to the right. Um, and so our hope is that when people see this, they can reflect, you know, would I share something like this? Maybe I should, you know, think twice about it. Maybe they were even friends with this particular account. Um, and so, yeah, we're still making our way through the data set. There's, I think, millions of tweets that are there. And, um, yeah, so we're going to be curating a selection of them. But there's going to be a lot of them so that people can look through them and then hear the, the animatronic sock puppet speaking the words. Um, yeah, so. I think the work you guys are doing is really important because this is the kind of stuff that can help us. Like, I think the first thing I ask you is, like, how do we discern what's true and what's not? And these types of, you know, um, uh, works of art and uh, using the data that you guys are using might be able to help us pause, like you said, you know. Um, where can people find out more about your work and, you know, when you come out with new stuff like the sock puppet thing and stuff? Where can we f- find out about that and view it and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a. Um, this is probably not that surprising, but I don't spend a lot of time on social media. <laughs> um, so, but I have a website. It's jennifergradecki.com, and Derek's website is derekcurry.com. Okay. Um, we don't update them regularly, um, but we are. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, you know, under our our names. Okay. Um, and we can also share that information with you if it makes it helpful to, yeah. to disseminate. Um, yeah, but I have an ambivalent relationship with social media. I know I need to promote our work on there, but it's it's hard to engage with something that I know is so manipulative. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me today. Um, I'm, I'm glad I got to speak with you two, and I'm really glad I got to see the project, and I'm looking forward to the next one. That sounds really neat, too. So um, thank you so much, and... Uh, Um, I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference, Jennifer. And uh, uh, Derek, maybe next time uh, we can meet in person. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Thanks again to Jennifer Gradecki and Derek Curry for joining us today on Artbeat. For more information on Derek's work, go to DerekCurry.com. For more information on Jennifer's work, go to JenniferGradecki.com. For more conversations on art, tune into Artbeat Tuesdays at 1230 right here on 89.5 KQAL. I'm Bill Stoneberg, and we've just heard from Jennifer Gradecki and Derek Curry at the International Digital Media Arts Association's Weird Media Conference today on Artbeat. Artbeat is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. Visit us on the web at kqal.org. Is art an important part of your life? Find podcasts of Artbeat and all your favorite KQAL shows at kqal.org. Artbeat is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.